this is the title of my book, You Make Your Path by Walking. It's like the movement is really, really important. Literally the movement. Now that doesn't mean you're always moving, but it means you're on a journey that is unfolding and you need to be tuning to what's the right next step for me. Hello and welcome to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. On today's podcast, I am talking to Suzanne Anderson. Suzanne is the founder of The Mysterial Woman. She is a psychologist, an author, coach, leadership consultant, and a transformational teacher. Her most recent book is titled, You Make Your Path by Walking, a transformational field guide through trauma and loss. Because she did, uh, I say most recent, because you were part of another, you were co-author of another book, Suzanne. What what was that? I was. What was that book? Well, that book was my, that was my first book um, called The Way of the Mysterial Woman, Upgrading How You Live, Love, and Lead. And that was based on really 10 years of leadership consulting and research that we did in our university programs for women, trying to find a, um, or understand, let's say, um, more about what it meant for women to awaken to a way of leading that was outside of just the masculine or kind of hyper-masculine model. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome again, and thank you for explaining you. that. I am honored to have you on the podcast. Now, where are you joining us from today? Where Where are you? You're sitting Seattle. in your home in Seattle. This is actually my studio, which okay. is behind my actual house. I have a, a little studio where I work and see clients and do my online programs. Yeah. Perfect. Well, I I lived in Seattle. It's the first one of the first places I lived when I moved to the U.S. was in the Seattle area for almost a year. Oh, really? Yeah, I lived in uh, Bellevue and Redmond area. I had host family, so I am very familiar. Well, I'd say yeah, I have, and I have a very strong tie to Seattle. My sister's actually buried in Seattle, so I in yeah, Evergreen Cemetery outside of Seattle. So. Yeah, so I have. How many years ago was that that you were out here? She died in nineteen ninety. My sister died in nineteen ninety six, and I lived there nineteen ninety four to ninety five. And she was there in a dance. So same kind of dynamics, but that's a whole other. That's a whole other thing. But I do have a. I have a whole strong spiritual connection to that area. Well, Suzanne, share with us the book you wrote. This book, there is of course a lot of background of why it is you wrote this new book and it has to do with you losing your life partner, David, who died by suicide. And we can 
share a little bit about how this book came to be? Yeah. Well, let's see. That is (laughs) a big question. How about this? Yeah. Share with us this very beautiful bond. And again, I don't want you to share too much that other, that then people are like, oh, I already got the cliff notes of the book. Why even read it? <laughs> I want them to actually be still intrigued to go and read it because there's so much in it. So share your relationship with David and that really strong yeah. bond you guys had and how you met. Yeah. So I do feel that my whole life was sort of finding its way toward David in, in a strange kind of way. I had this sense when I was a little girl of a David. I don't know where it came from. I, I, I don't really don't know. Was it a TV thing? Was it, I don't know. But I just sort of, every time I would meet a David, I would feel, I would wonder if he was the one. And uh, ultimately I ended up marrying a Robert and who was not a David. And, um, but I remember, uh, but you said, but his dad's name was a David, right? So you're like, oh, yeah. that's close enough. <laughs> That's right. And I thought, okay, that must be it. Because it was, it was just this strange little thing. And ultimately, I lived on an island. My life took me all over the place. And, but I ended up with my first husband living on an island near Seattle. We were in the, the breakdown of our marriage, actually. It, I think, probably fell apart in the, in the stress of trying to get pregnant and have children and, or have a child which did not happen, had many miscarriages, but did not actually result in in pregnancy. But that is super stressful on anybody's um, relationship, of course. And and ours did not make it through that challenge. So my meeting with David was, I'd actually heard of him and his store in Seattle, which was a well-known kind of iconic Indonesian antique furniture store. 14,000 square feet in this fabulous historic building. And you would just go in there and it would smell like vetiver and on the, the sort of sense of Indonesia. It was just beautiful. And my sister lived in Indonesia. Um, so when they visited, I'd taken her in there. And I kind of, I, I, I think I even knew that he lived on Vashon, but, which is where I lived. But one day I went to a concert um, that he, his home was about five minutes away from mine. And he had this, he had done incredible things of bringing antique Indonesian homes from Java. He would take them down, dismantle them one little piece of wood at a time, rebuild them in his workshop in Indonesia, put them all back up, number them all like, like Lego, and then ship them over in containers. It was just insane. Along with Indonesian carpenters, that he would bring over and they would then put everything back up again. So he had one of the, this incredible temple building made out of teak, gorgeous from an area of Indonesia called Kudus. And there was a concert, an Indian music concert going on. And I'd wandered up there to watch it. And I saw this interesting man. I was still married at the time. I wasn't looking for a relationship. I actually thought that, that Robert and I would just would, would work it out. We would get through this hard part. Anyway, I asked somebody where, whose place was it? And I'm a, I think I probably knew it was David's, but who was David? And they pointed him out. And yeah, I just, I, I took him in as a very elegant, handsome, interesting man. Um, but the, or and the person I was asking said, I think he's gay. And I thought, okay, well, I, that's fine. Um, but I, I didn't, that just sort of went in because, because he didn't live with anybody. He had this incredible 
eccentric life. <laughs> and there was an assumption made. So ultimately, uh, I, I won't tell the whole story of, of how we, we met exactly that you, the reader can get in the book because it is kind of a high speed chase <laughs> in cars. Um, but when we did meet, I, I had the sense that he was gay. So I felt a freedom to talk about my new impending divorce. And he thought all the times I'm talking about being divorced was because I was coming on to him. So <laughs> you're like, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. I'm, While you were thinking more, oh, I'm free to talk to him because he's not, he's not a threat to my... He's not going to hit on me and it's going to be all right. And which meant that we, we had months of developing this wonderful friendship, actually, which was beautiful. And then we had that as a foundation when things did kind of turn toward a more intimate relationship. Yeah. Thank you so much. It, 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 uh, it gives such a beautiful description to who he was and his energy. And just like you said, eccentric was just the fact of bringing these artifacts like from beyond and building his land was where you guys lived was a big, right? How many acres? Like 17 15, or something 15. like that? Well, 15 when I, when I moved in and then I bought five. So it was 17 altogether. 17, okay. Yeah. 17 acres in total yeah. of, of land. Yeah. And you had different little structures on the property of different spaces where you would go. Now I'm going to backtrack a little because mm. you've been in this space of transformational space for many years prior mm -hmm. to meeting David. So tell us that journey of how you became a transformational coach with that. Is that the right word? Uh, I guess so. In a certain sense, I was in the leadership space and working as a management consultant for many years and based ultimately from Toronto. Initially, my consulting firm was in Toronto. And then I moved to France to Paris to run the international office of that um, work. And at the time, this was the 90s, it was a big time for leadership development. Basically, organizations having to come out of this more masculine model into sharing information, using other ways of knowing, team building, all that kind of stuff. And, and I, it was a very exciting time for me. There weren't very many women in that space, um, working with senior teams and it was very exciting. At the same time, the few women that were in senior levels um, of organizations were, were suffering. And I would be with them in these executive offsites that we did. And they it was almost like they were stuck inside of what I would call now a masculine model of leadership. And they'd learned to be very good. They'd learned to be one of the boys. And I was coming. I thought they'd be so excited to meet me as a woman consultant, because there weren't that many, as I said. And um, in fact, they were the most resistant to the change. It was sort of mm -hmm. stunning to me. But at the same time, at, late at night at, in the bar, after our sessions, they'd say, um, they'd tell me about what was really going on for them and their their suffering. So that was, it was like something was really wrong here. Something was fundamentally wrong. Um, that we were in this great wave of leadership development. A lot of companies were now investing a lot in that. But women seemed to be slotted in that wave to be developing along the same lines as men. And was that correct? I wasn't sure, but I needed to find out. So I actually ended up leaving the firm 
and um, setting up a, a private coaching practice. And it was full in a minute with women. This is who, what year? What this, year is this? In the late nineties? No, the mid nineties, mid nineties. Mid nineties. Okay. Yeah. And uh, because by, yeah, the late nineties I'd moved here. So to here being Seattle and what I discovered was over the course of a year of working with women was that I was in territory that I wasn't sure I was exactly equipped for. I mean, I sometimes felt literally like I was one step ahead of the women. I knew there was a problem and it wasn't just about behaviors. It wasn't teaching just about teaching new skills. It had to do with something under the surface, which I later came to understand would be more what I would call now developmental trauma. And so ways that we learned to to get love, safety, and belonging by putting parts of ourselves away, into, away. The, mm. into the shadows. But I didn't know that then. I just knew it was something that I didn't know. So I went back to graduate school in developmental psychology to in women focused on women in particular to, to seek to understand that. Um, so that was the, and then that work was just phenomenal. I mean, it continues to be, it was like this, you know, it's probably worth saying it came, uh, rose together with, a spiritual awakening I'd had with the divine feminine um, in Indonesia. And that sense of there's something trying to happen on the planet right now around the awakening of the feminine. I was in a very mainstream world of a more masculine world in my work. And I didn't really understand what even the divine feminine or deep feminine was. And the 10 years I spent doing my my programs um, were the research to figure that out. So that was learning about, about um, transformation and trauma and how do people change. And so when we got to this moment that, you know, we're going to be speaking about, I, yes. I had a lot of understanding. I mean, certainly academic or let's say, you know, I understood things about trauma and transformation and I'd had my own lived experience at some level, but this was, of course, another thing altogether. Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. It just it, it's different when you've already been in a space, and then you experience it yourself. There must be this sense of responsibility, like, wait, but I already know intellectually what I'm supposed to be doing and and how I'm supposed to be dealing with this. But it's very different when you're actually living it. And so, when you experience David's death. 2013. So mm -hmm. correct. Mm -hmm. So January, 2013. So it's been 10 years since yes. his death. And in that time period, you had been together already 10 years at that we moment? We were together 10 years. Yeah. 10 years. You experienced his death. It was, it, you did not see it coming. You, it was just out of left field. And there's these little nuances around it that that gave you then an idea after his death that he had been thinking about it, which were the letters that he wrote and left behind. I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, so I'll come back and tie it all together. Tell us that moment then after his death, you're receiving, you're reading this letter. How was it for you reading that? Yes, well, I think I should say that he 
he had left letters, five letters, for different people in close in his life, and I, I was one of them, in a brown paper bag in his car, um, which was so undavid. He was a, a very elegant, as I mentioned, and you know, beauty was everything for him. That he didn't have a beauty, but I think it was because he didn't want it to be found when I first got back. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, but the police got the letters before I did. So because it was basically, in essence, a crime scene, they took them, which was horrible. So I had the sense of David had written something, but I couldn't get it. I couldn't have access to it. And I'm, of course, I was absolutely in shock. There were no indications that this was coming. The night before we'd been at the dinner at his sister's house for celebrating a wedding that was coming up on Saturday. This was, so this was Wednesday night and the, of Claire. his niece, Claire and Chris. Yeah. Claire, Claire yeah. Chris. Yeah. Great. And they met through him because it was his niece and the son of his best friend in Indonesia who had helped him start his furniture business and they were getting married on Saturday. So we'd had this incredible dinner. He was making toasts and was just the life of the party. He was struggling with tinnitus. This is something to say, which is this terrible screeching in the head of sound, which I've I've heard is absolutely brutal. And because there's no norm, there is a no cure for it right now. Many people do consider, can I live with this? Can I actually go on? And he was he'd had it for about three months, so that was that was a, a definitely a factor for him. Of course, there was much more going on than, than just that. So I wanted to understand what had happened, what was going on. Like some somehow I have to understand this. And I was just waiting to get the letter. So it wasn't until the next day that I got my the letters and then gave, I got my own, and then there were others I had to deliver to the others. And that was very difficult. I actually had a good friend of mine sit with me because I I wasn't sure how I would take in whatever it was. And just letting those words land in me, um, which were letters by those who leave by suicide can be can be very problematic. So, you know, I, I will say I I am grateful for the fact that he wrote me a letter and it was very loving and it helped me understand that he he just couldn't go on. He just had no strength to go on. Something that when you mentioned some briefly what something he said in the letter regarding you've uh, been to what is it the Haiti Hades and that you something about in, in the word sorry I'm like trying no, to No that was your thinking like I, the, I think you're thinking that was of, not from that letter. <clears throat> okay, tell me no. that part because it says something. You've been, you've been yeah, already that, to the bottom. You're going right. to be able to. No, no, that certainly was not David. That was not David. It was not. That was one of that. That something that happened. And what, why you're confusing them is just because I, I do read the letter to this friend Michael Mead. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Who is an author. And also does a lot of work with ritual and and helps people through suicide. I mean, has been had been working at the high school, local high school, where there'd recently been a suicide. And he is a mythologist and a yeah, ritual elder, as I say. I 
asked him to come and meet me the next day, just like, help me understand what had happened. And I read him the letter. Now, prior to that, just to say, we, I work also with myth, and myth is a very powerful myths that endure over time it's like they yeah, have and you the, start each chapter with one of these myths so it's really you tie well, it I wrote, into your I life wrote my own music. little Beautiful. myth but um but the myth that has been a central myth in my own work with women for years and still for me now is the persephone demeter myth it's and that is the myth of this young maiden do you know that myth from greek a greek myth oh my gosh i have not read greek yeah. mythology and woo Well, the the basic essence of it is, and and is that Persephone is this innocent maiden picking flowers in a field and with her mother, Demeter, and Hades, who's the god of the underworld, has seen her, fallen in love with her, and decides he will have her as his bride. And he agrees or arranges it with Zeus. And Mm One day he comes up on his chariot, the horses thundering, and grabs her and takes her down into the underworld. And there are many things that happen in this myth that are very interesting that I, I won't go into depth here, although in my first book I do go into the myth more. Um, and the the interesting thing that happens next for Persephone is that she she refuses, she resists that she's in Hades. She won't eat anything, she won't talk. She's just like, I am not here. This is not happening to me. And and then at a certain point, she is going to be set free. Zeus agrees she has to leave now. And Hermes, the messenger god, comes to get her. And as she's about to return to the upper world, uh, Hades offers her a few pomegranate seeds, which she chooses to eat. And thinking, okay, I'm, out of, I'm getting out of Hades. I can eat these now. And then she goes to the upper world. And then she meets her mother again and realizes very quickly that because she's eaten the fruit of the underworld, she must go six months into the underworld and six months to the upper world. Oh, she made a commitment. (laughs) Well, what happens ultimately is she becomes queen of the underworld, falls in love with Hades, is the queen of the underworld and queen of the upper world. And this, the reason I use the myth in my programs and why it was important now, and we'll return to this story, is that we we as women have often neglected our embodied experience, which we could call Mm. the underworld or that which is not conscious, rational, logical, and the body. And we need to have a relationship with it. And a yin-yang symbol, the yin is the dark in that yin-yang symbol. And our tendency is to resist what happens. And we don't need to resist. And so that is the main thing, you know, that I doing my work. So Michael um, said to me, and I read him the letter and I was struggling with what to make sense of this. And he just looked at me and said, remember you are Queen Persephone. And this situation, this tragic situation is going to drag you into the dark at a deeper level than you've ever been before but you do know how to navigate in the dark and you can trust that. And you need to do that. That's where you need to go now. Don't resist. You know, we'll hold space for you in the upper world and let go now. And something in that moment, uh, something did shift in me, almost like 
a kind of surrender, a kind of surrender um, to the grief, to to everything that the dark would mm. take me into, because it was grief, anger, fear, terror, really. Um, mm -hmm. and it was everything. Yeah. And there was so many unanswered, well, some answered questions after he died regarding the reasons a lot of it had to do with this financial responsibility as well, that now you were going to have to figure out as well. So right. that in itself, that is very heavy too. That brings you, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, down as well. So how I wanted to then tie these two aspects, then you, you are now this woman who's empowered other women, you've done all these, you're now dealing with your own situation. You were about to have a retreat. Well, the two things that were right, the two things that were going to happen, one was the, my first book was about, I had, it was finished and it was, you know, here it is. I'll just, that's my first book. <laughs> the way the mysterious okay, woman. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. I see it. Now. Uh -huh. Yeah. So that was about to, it was complete, was ready to be, to find a publisher and come out in the world. And we were running that aligned with that because my co-author and I had taken some time out of running programs to, to write. We were about to run our first program five days later after David's death. So all of a sudden the, the directionality, you know, just to, to imagine it, I'm ready to fly. Literally, it felt like I'd spent years of figuring this things out wow. with, in the research and we're about to go out into the world with it. And life said, no, you'll, you'll take one more deep dive and you'll really live this and yeah. see if it's, if it's true, if this operating system, we could say this, this, um, inner operating system, this way of being and doing in the world can really hold up in the most unimaginable mm -hmm. circumstances possible, basically. Wow. Yeah, the, 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 again, are there the yin and yang of what you were experiencing in your own life, these contrasts of things going on of, you know, your life about to take off in one direction, yet exactly. you're being pulled back down again to the, the underworld again let's talk about rituals and how rituals were part of your grief journey and your grieving journey. Mm. Take us into the first ritual you did after David's death, please. Yeah. Well, ritual, first of all, is, I think it's worth saying it, it, it is a language that I teach in the work that I do. I think it's a forgotten language, not by indigenous people, of course, but in our Western world, we do know the value of rituals, celebratory rituals like weddings and, and, um, and we do know the value of a memorial and, but we've lost a lot of other rituals and what ritual does. And we know this, you know, there's just been so much good work done in this field over the years, but is it's ritual speaks to the conscious and the unconscious, you know, that's what happens. It speaks to the body. And when you're in a trauma situation or any loss, it doesn't have to be as dramatic as let's say what I went through, you need to speak to both parts of yourself. You know, I often think of the iceberg theory as a way of describing uh, consciousness. It's a well-used kind of metaphor where two thirds of our consciousness is under the surface of awareness. 
and yet it determines the direction of where we move, the choices we make in life. So we need to speak to that part of ourselves, and ritual does that. And I knew that for myself from the get-go, that um, I was going to have to do things with ritual. Actually, the very first ritual that we did was with Michael. Michael, as I mentioned, is does the you know knows a lot about ritual, and I absolutely needed help. I I couldn't hold my own ritual in the same way. I, I needed to be held in ritual. But the very first thing we did was a ritual to, this was, I I invited all the friends of the close-in friends and family to my home. And it was by invitation, but I knew that that, that what needed to happen was we needed to be able to feel whatever we were feeling and people were feeling everything. It was so shocking, not just to me, and his immediate uh, siblings, family, but to everyone. We were well-known in our community, well-known in Seattle, and he was well-known in his store. And the David who we knew and the David who could do this were not in the same bucket, so to speak. So it was just devastating for so many people. But the very close friends, it felt important to come and be able to be congruent. And just as an example, one of the very first things I did at the beginning of the ritual, one of my dear close friends who was there with me at the beginning when we found David and who has a practices, um, shamanic traditions. Antonia? Is that? Yes, exactly. Yeah. She was rattling, doing this amazing high rattling in front of the, the fireplace and the whole, you could just feel the space. If you've ever heard that kind of, sound in a in a ritual and when it got to a certain peak i had a an antique chinese bowl actually a very valuable bowl that david was a collector of many different antiques and this was from china had a slight chip in it and um when we got to a certain point of the pitch of this rattling i took the vessel and i just smashed it on the hearth and the whole room, all, everyone, all of us just were, it's like it, it communicated to me. And I think to everyone that we're not putting this back together in this, this death and the way that David left. And ultimately I would soon discover, you know, the, the, what he left me to, what came down on top of me that he couldn't handle uh, was not going to, this world was not going to go back together. And that was hugely powerful for me. As hard as it was, it was also, again, getting congruence between what you know with your mind, you know, conscious mind and what your body knows. And then in the ritual, people had the opportunity, if they were moved to, to come up and say, share anything, whether it was anger, and it was sometimes for some people, or grief, or just scream, or whatever was correct for them. And the rest of us would just hold space for that. And this is a tradition that's used in many, that um, actually comes from someone named Joanna Macy, who does this work, has done this work brilliantly for years. And... And then after they would share, they would take a bow, a cedar bow, and put it on the fire 
and just send a little blessing to David's spirit as he transitioned to for release in some way. Um, it was actually a very, I'll just say for myself, but I do feel there were certain things I could do that helped me, but also I, I knew would help the collective field find mm -hmm. harmony again, because it was such a shattering at so many levels for so many people. The part that you guys did some of this grieving in community, mm -hmm. it's very cathartic, right? And it's because even though you're all feel maybe different, the emotions that might be coming up for everybody are different around the grief. The fact that you're all holding space for each other in that grief in this community just is so yeah cathartic. I it's the, absolutely it was yeah the the word I could uh, use. Whoa, thunder! Light, thunder and lightning. Did, could you yeah. hear it? I did yeah, hear it. That yes. was thunder. Wow. <laughs> that was that was like the shattering of your <laughs> absolutely. That was a, <laughs> that's an underlining wow. of what we're saying here. Yeah. So. Let, I want to now go into how you were feeling and your travels to Hawaii. And you were a friend of yours offered a space for you to stay in Hawaii. You had so many responsibilities and things you had to kind of deal with, right. again, of what you were left. You go to Hawaii with uh, Antonia. And if you can share a little bit about your walking in the trails up, I can never, I've been to the volcano and yet I, Haleakala, Haleakala, yeah. Haleakala, my, my kids could pronounce all of the words, everything when we were in Maui, my kids could say, yet I was like, I cannot for my, I could never pronounce Haleakala, like I could, like I could never retain it. So you're up in the trails and you have your own, um, what a spiritual experience in these trails. Could you well, share yeah. a little bit mm -hmm. there? I th it was important. And this is going to be, this is important for, for people going through the grieving journey is you have to, there were in my case, things I had to take care of. I did not have the luxury I could say of just taking care of myself or myself. And, you know, I, I had to, recognize the financial meltdown that was happening all around. There were just many, many things I, I had to do. But at a certain point, I knew things were, I had done a, the first pass of all of that and had a lot of help to do that. And I knew I needed an, an exhale. I, I, and I couldn't do it there in the, in the, you could say, in the trauma zone of my home and my island and so on. So it's really important to know when it's right to go and be healed, be in a healing time. And the, uh, so, I'm, I'm going to yeah. pause you there. It's also that aspect of sometimes you have to step away to get, to be able to see. I always say like, you can't see your nose. You're so close to, you, you can't see it. Right. <laughs> so it's that when you're so close into the situation, you can't see things sometimes in perspective. It's okay to Absolutely. take a few steps back to be able to really, yeah, see the view. Sorry. Yeah, you have to do that in your own. And I think everyone finds their own timing with that because sometimes people want you to do it sooner than you're ready. Or, or and, but sometimes you wait too long too. You know, you you don't make that. This is the title of my book. You make your path by walking. It's like the movement 
is really, really important, literally the movement. Now, that doesn't mean you're always moving, but it means you're on a journey that is unfolding and you need to be tuning to what's the right next step for me. Anyway, for me, it was, I was offered this beautiful opportunity to stay in a, in a home in, in Maui. And I knew I couldn't do that on my own. So Antonia came with me and she was the perfect partner. Well, we went into the Haleakala is a, is a crater, a, a volcano, volcanic crater. And it's quite high, actually. So you hike down in it. And we just were hiking down and it's raw. It's the clouds come in and out. So there's a sort of mist at times. There's shrubs, there's cactus. It's, it's just raw. And... It was the first time I felt like the outer, the outer world reflected my inner world. That's how I felt. And Antonia was way ahead or she was somewhere. We were on our own. And I just, I screamed and I, and I sobbed and I, and there was nobody around. I just felt like this is a match for what I feel and I can have everything I feel, the whole range of the enormous grief, the enormous anger that David had left in the way that he had and at the time that he had. Um, and the, the terror, as I said, of what is going to happen to me, to, to how do I get through this, all of that. Just give myself permission to have every feeling so cathartic. That was cathartic. And interestingly, when you go... You, we, we'd gone down quite far and it hadn't occurred to us that, I don't know if you recall this, but it happens to a lot of people. So the moment you turn and start to go back up, you realize it's because of the altitude, how hard it is. I mean, literally, you can barely take a step to get back up. And along the way, it was so symbolic because it was like every step was so hard, like we had cement mm. boots on. And... Um, and we passed a woman who had basically said, I can't go back up. But this was getting to the end of the day. We, you had to get up with, out of there because at night it got freezing in there. And we ended up really being, getting her out of there. And, and for me, it was just saying, you've got to take another step. Take another step. You can do this. You can do this. And I thought, especially later, it was just such a metaphor for me, for myself, for how the step I took could inspire somebody else. Mm -hmm. It was all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I actually wrote down a quote that of what you said there, which was when everything falls apart, there is only what is directly in front of you. And that one step is what you need to take. And it's enough. Right. Yeah. Because it's true. Sometimes we focus on the whole mountain ahead right here, even as you're there. Right. In this, yet all you can focus on is just on that next step and in your grief. That's what you, that's what you did. And that, that experience of Hawaii, then you had another beautiful moment oh. in the ocean, which then again showed you a whole other aspect of emotions that you had not experienced yet in your grief. Can you share the experience with the dolphins? Well, yes. And I had always wanted to swim with the dolphins, actually. I'd been to Hawaii before and had wanted to there are people that you can't do this anymore i think they've stopped this but you used to be able to hire people that would know how to take you out to swim with dolphins but it had never happened and 
this was the day after the the fire and heat of, of Haleakala. And we, Antonio and I went to the beach and we could see far out. There were people on, on their wakeboard, on the, their surfboards and paddleboards and that there was obviously a school of dolphins, but it was quite far out and you would need to have something to get out there. But that was wonderful. You know, with, with the, oh, they're here. They're actually in this cove. That's so incredible. And so we both went under the water and did our own calling of the dolphins. However, that would be just sort of sending them our, our little blessing or our energy, let's say. And um, we were quite far apart where we were swimming. And all of a sudden, I could see these dorsal fins coming toward me, like 15 of them, 20 of them, a lot of them. And I was, that can't be the dolphins. And the dolphins went all the way around me several times. They made several turns. It was phenomenal experience of energy. First of all, I could almost touch them. Like I, I sort of have the sense that I touched them, but I don't know that I actually did touch them. Um, but I was surrounded by them and it was this, the water was all stirred up. But what I'd experienced, because there was a sort of fear initially when I saw all the fins coming toward me, that they're powerful animals. And then, but then once they were around me, it was just this transmission of joy and love of love and joy. That's all I could say. It's just like they just, it just got injected into the cells of my being. And I can still feel it. You know, I'm telling you about it. Mm. I can feel it, get the chills, just remembering that feeling. And then they left. And then I started, I was just sort of stunned and came, started swimming into shore. And Antonia was further over and she started swimming in. Well, they'd also done the same to her, which I hadn't known. And people, we got in and people on the beach said, oh my God, what was that like? We just saw the dolphins swimming around you guys. It was just amazing. And I will say it, it sort of like they awakened the, the joy and love in my heart that I would come to experience long time later because it didn't last for long but um but I felt it was possible and I felt it I also in all of those endorphins oxytocin everything just flooded my system that had not been present and was so so healing for me it's so important to be able to recall these different little moments in which we have in our life because they do give us then that hope that those feelings of love, of joy will be possible. Even amidst your grief, you still had these glimpses of yeah. joy, love, and they give you hope in, for what can can be. So, Well, I'm just going to add, if I may, that. if I can I just please, add. Please, they, add I think they, they give you hope, but also later there would be many things that would happen where there'd just be a moment of joy with somebody or, you know, we'd be having a glass of wine and telling a funny story or, or um, something, joy, sweetness, love that were just so in contrast to my the normal moments of my day. And I think of emotions basically as being waves. They, they are meant to be waves. They, they rise and they fall. Unfortunately, sometimes, especially the unpleasant ones, 
we attach to them and they yes. we hold on to them and they don't get the chance to resolve or we identify with them but with when i would have a i'd be sort of basically up out of the underworld you know on a on a in a moment of joy i would soak it all up like this is something to really be deliberate about any of your listeners that first of all you have to accept that there will be those moments and that doesn't mean it's a denying of the horror and the loss and the connection with your beloved and your love that you would feel joy again you actually need it and when you do whenever there's one of those moments just like you just literally turn the volume up let yourself get flooded with that feeling because you'll need it because it's like oxygen right and then you're going to get pulled down again into the by the undertow of grief and you'll be down deep and you will need your body will literally need that um cellular connection to joy yeah yeah, it's like coming out. It's just like the dolphins coming out for air. They go back. They come right. out, right? They come back down. So those moments in which you are feeling that joy, it's like feeling that sun, that warmth in your in your body to kind of recharge you for those moments in which you're mm -hmm. going to be down again in these other well experiences and emotions of sorrow and sadness and grief and just to, to know that it's mm -hmm. just going to be a waves. As we're kind of wrapping up the conversation, I could go deeper. I could go into, I want, I have wrote, I wrote notes of wanting to also talk about your cat, Emma, and that, that aspect there, but I want the readers to go and read that, the listeners to go and read that as well. So as we're wrapping up, please share with us one is how, when your book comes out, it comes out in June, June, June 13th, when? June 13th. And how can people get your book? It's everywhere right now on all, it's on Amazon and bookshop and, you know, so your local, your, yeah, pre-ordering. Yes. And also I highly support your local bookstore. So go in and pre-order it with them and you can get a link, all those links on my website too. As well. And now aside from your book, can you please share how people can be in, in touch with you and work with yeah. you and what kind of women, do you particularly work with women still? At, uh, with I women? do, although this book okay. we'll see in the future, I'll be doing programs that are probably um, mixed gender in that way. But I am running a retreat for the first time in, in 10 years, actually. That's a retreat outside of my programs that I run 15 month programs for women that are very, very, powerful experiences of transformation. They have retreats, but a, a retreat just for people to come to for the first time, that'll be June 8th to the 11th, right before my book comes out. That's on the website, You Make Your Path by Walking Retreat. And there's also going to be a webinar uh, book launch online on June 22nd. That's also on the retreat. And women can sign up for that. That'll be a 90-minute sort of workshop on the core principles of how you live your life by making your path by walking um, and get on my mailing list. My, my website is mysterialwoman.com and that's M Y S T E R I A L woman.com and, uh, and be in touch that way. So many offerings that you have for the listeners. Now, Suzanne, if you can share with us any other parting thoughts regarding the grief journey or hope for the 
person and people that are listening to this podcast? Yeah. Well, I think the the point of my book, the reason I actually wrote the book, I didn't know that I would write this book. It just, I needed to write for myself at a certain point. And then it became clear after I'd written that this might be of value to others. But the main essence is that if you are going through something, life has happened, dragged you into Hades, you could say, um, by a loss that you are grieving, then you have loved some. You have had a lot of there's this beautiful connection between loving and losing. And so that love is available. And it's also, a, that's the breaking open of your heart. And it's possible, and this is my lived experience, that you can, how you live through the the journey of loss is what determines where you go next. As opposed to, I'm just trying to get back to some normal just trying to get back to where I was before, just trying to have my life again. But no, actually, there's a there's a becoming. There's somewhere new you can be taken. Um, I'm I have found that I am still unfolding that journey, and it is possible that your journey can take you somewhere that you could never have imagined. Now that is different, and I need to distinguish that from oh this was meant to happen or what a gift it was, or I don't actually, um, subscribe to that. No, <laughs> subscribe to that. I, I can relate to the offerings that I mm -hmm. took in and metabolized during this. I wouldn't necessarily call them gifts. Uh, they were brutal and very, very hard, but they were the offerings. They were what was, you know, for me, I lost absolutely everything. Not everybody will have to go through that. And, but I did take I did take it in as okay, I am reduced to the ashes here, and how will I rebuild myself and my life? And that is up to me. As you're saying that, I'm thinking back to the entrepreneur women that you worked with in Toronto, like, and how they wanted to move forward yet at the same time weren't like when you were coaching, you're like, wait, what's going on here? And this aspect of change being something that is so hard for so many of us. Right. But that knowing that it's okay to change. And sometimes we do get comfortable in what we know and what we think is, and that this is a reality that we cannot fathom it being or looking any different until things like what occurred to you happen. <clears throat> that yeah. you're brought down to again to start from scratch and rebuild. And this happens in different aspects of life, not just in these situations like yours, but in other circumstances, For people sure. losing their jobs and things like that. And what you do from there. And again, with even just the title of your book being, it's like you make your path by walking. And that's a thing. It's like you do have to take that first step into a direction and you will yeah. see what the path holds from there. Absolutely. And changes is, you know, we're still all of us emerging out of the pandemic situation and the enormous 
cost that that had and the trauma that that was actually. Some of us losing people directly through that or certainly losing a way of life and we're just coming back into that. So I, I in my work, have a, a slogan that says basically welcome discomfort because mm. the the changes, the, the discomforts in our life have the potential to be the things that are allowing us to grow again. But we have to we we have to see that and not resist it, not not think, oh, because this is different than it was before, I shouldn't this shouldn't be happening, or I want to just get comfortable again and really let ourselves be in the the mystery of life unfolding. Like our our becoming is such an incredible mystery. And we have the opportunity to be you know, through those of us that are given the offering of a very difficult loss, then I felt there's an honoring also of that love you had for that person that you lost in the way that you choose to grow yourself, become more whole through the, through the losing. It's a very, very powerful process. I'm taking it all in, everything you said. I am grateful for you having shared your journey and your story and little glimpses of, of your of your life here with the audience. And I wish you all the best in the release of this book in June and of this retreat. And I hope the listeners are able to connect with you and maybe join you in that or the and or the online launch. So thank you so much again, Suzanne. Mm, thank you. Suzanne Anderson for for us on the podcast. And again, the book is titled You Make Your Path by Walking. Thank you again, Suzanne. Thank you. Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.